This is Dave Robinson, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Bench Talk, The Week in Science. I hope you caught our show last week about COVID-19. Although most of us feel finished with this coronavirus, it looks like the coronavirus is not really finished with us yet. Just since our show aired last week, June 13th, 2022, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the White House's chief medical advisor, has caught COVID-19. Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Becerra also tested positive this week, and so did National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. The Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, came down with COVID this week, as did King Mohammed of Morocco. The governor of Nebraska just caught COVID, and so did Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. In addition to these famous cases, another 2,000 ordinary Americans died of COVID-19 in the last seven days. So out of concern about the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, we're going to continue with the Bench Talk Live lecture sponsored last year by the Kentucky Academy of Science. It's Dr. Stuart Williams of the Department of Physiology and Biophysics at the University of Louisville. Now, you can go to our website or our Facebook pages to catch the first half of Dr. Williams' talk. And his presentation slides are also linked on these pages if you want to see the data firsthand. So, without further ado, here is Dr. Stuart Williams. So the question also was raised, does this virus directly attack the lymph nodes of patients? And that's pretty clear from the literature now. This is a really nasty virus. It gets right across the epithelial cells of the lung, goes to the vascular system, and goes right to one of our major defense mechanisms, the the lymph nodes in the body, which is something that uh, I first learned about when I met this gentleman in the late 1990s. This is Senator Dan Inouye. He was the senator from Hawaii. And in the late 1990s, he was on a committee that oversaw new projects that DARPA was getting involved with at the time. And I was called in by his staff and uh, a large group of us were called in because DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Program Administration, one of the things that they were concerned about was some sort of foreign attack that would basically wipe out the human immune system. And DARPA's major goal is to protect the United States from technological attacks. So Senator Inouye and the leadership of DARPA brought us together and gave us several tasks. And when I say us, it was uh, individuals, University of Wisconsin, uh, a couple of specific companies, Enscript, Cyperio that I mentioned before. I was at the University of Arizona as a group from Florida. There were, there were probably 20 investigators who were brought to the original meeting. And they asked us to do three simple things. One, come up with a way of printing human lymph nodes that could be re-implanted into patient to restore their immune system. They also wanted to come up with new vaccines and the uh, mRNA vaccine was one of the ones that they were most interested in because they wanted to come up with a way of creating a vaccine within 90 days from the recognition of a, uh, a new virus. 
and they wanted in vitro models to help understand how viruses attack the body. So 1999, under the secrecy of DARPA, we put together what is now the first bioprinter that uses an extrusion system in order to extrude cells. And it took us 18 months to produce this uh, device. It's sitting on the 11th floor. It's, uh, I've made some modifications uh, on it since it was originally put together. 11th floor of the research tower in the Department of Physiology. Uh, It utilized pens to extrude uh, this material. And here was basically our work product. These are human lymph nodes that can be made autologously from a patient's own cells. It has a vascular system that when this lymph node is implanted, we only uh, got to the point of implanting into animals, it would revascularize and it would produce human antibodies. Two instruments are built. One is next to the Holy Grail out in Nevada, wherever the government keeps all those secret things in boxes. And the other one is sitting on the 11th floor. But it really was the beginning of uh, trying to create organs using this what uh, technique that is known as bioprinting. So here are the three things that we were uh, asked to uh, come up with solutions for. Develop a 3D bioprinter for lymph nodes these mRNA vaccines, and this gave rise to a number of different uh, companies. DARPA is all about transferring the technology to companies. And then in vitro models for virus interactions with cells. And I'll talk about this one uh, very briefly. The company that emerged from this is a company called Vax Design. Uh, Bill Warren was uh, the investigator who's part of the DARPA project that created this company, Vax Design. And he basically took endothelial cells, linked them with epithelial cells, and it was a way of under in vitro conditions to see how a virus can get across those two layers and basically create some sort of a response, including we put our little lymph node, uh, lymph node into this model also. In 2020, again, a Chinese group in the journal Death and Disease utilized this system in order to study how the coronavirus could get from essentially the airspace across the epithelium and attack the endothelium. This was mid-2020, about March 2020. And very elegant study, used this in vitro model and a very, very critical conclusion that they came to that I was extremely excited to read about. The unrecognized crosstalk between epithelium and endothelium that contributes to not only alveolar, but capillary injury in the lungs. And these are the Western blots that show it. This uh, neuropeptide, which is specific to the coronavirus, was being produced by the endothelial cells in this model. It's also one of the the first times that I've seen these in vitro microphysiological systems actually used elegantly in order to show how, in this case, the coronavirus can actually attack the uh, endothelial cells, but actually uh, to show uh, some mechanisms of how this uh, uh, virus is getting across the epithelial cells is not metabolized or changed by the epithelial cells and gets into the endothelial cells. It's also currently being used to try to study these variants and why they're so more infective. It appears to be the spike proteins are undergoing alterations and that alteration 
is allowing for more rapid endocytosis across the epithelial cell layer. I want to spend just a brief time on the COVID rash. This is a cardiovascular event. Essentially, it's a vascular event. This COVID rash uh, is often seen after getting the uh, vaccine, but it is also seen in some other conditions. The vaccine-related rash can appear all over the place, not only at the site of injection, but you can see it in some of the more distal uh, uh, sites. It is something that is common to a lot of vaccinations. So those people who are fearful of the vaccine because they've heard of the COVID rash and some horrible thing that has taken uh, place, like these rashes that occur after vaccination have been seen with pretty much every vaccine that has been utilized. And it is often dependent upon the patient and other underlying conditions that they may have as far as their susceptibility. This is from a textbook on virology and vaccinations, all the different adverse events that you can see. It's interesting that some of these adverse events, which are seen with some of the more common vaccinations, we haven't seen a whole lot of this with the coronavirus mRNA and now the uh, the DNA uh, vaccine. So it mostly is a normal local tenderness, warmth, fever, irritability. Um, this is a pretty unique vaccine that it doesn't seem to have a lot of these other uh, responses of many of the other vaccines that are out there. COVID-19 is an endothelial cell disease. So to attack the lung pathology only has clearly been misguided. We've got to attack the entire vascular system in order to attack this particular virus. We certainly give them more oxygen, but trying to treat just the inflammation of the pneumocytes, that's not going to attack the full disease here. We have to get to the endothelial cells and attack the inflammation there. It's pro-inflammatory in the heart, and we're seeing effects on the heart. We're seeing reduced barrier function, but we now know this virus can get directly to uh, specific types of brain cells and hopefully give us a solution to the mechanism of brain fog and then also give us some things that we can use therapeutically to affect what is uh, in the long haulers, as we call them, uh, brain fog. Cytokine storm, pathophysiology, all of the different things are going to be used, but I'm going to limit my discussion of this very dense figure to one specific thing, D-dimers, a biomarker of thrombosis. In the care of COVID patients right now, this is probably the major factor that is evaluated in these patients. And this is a sign of fibrinogen going to fibrin. D-dimer is released, gets into the blood, and we can take a look at the general state of thrombosis in these particular patients. This came to light very recently when the J&J product was associated with thrombosis in patients. So three patients died after having the J&J vaccine. We're still trying to figure out the direct correlation there. But these patients were put on heparin, which we now know uh, the vaccine may have directly or indirectly caused a thrombocytopenia and heparin shouldn't be used. Best thing to say at this point is 
there's a lot of room for a lot of uh, dissertations and studies to try to understand how now these viruses are affecting this. Uh, to my knowledge, this has uh, not been seen before with any virus that it affects so many of these different systems. Uh, cardiac arrests in COVID-19 patients, they're way up. A lot of it related both in hospital as well as outside of hospital studies from Sweden, which Sweden had their own unique way of taking on this uh, virus and uh, uh, no masking, et cetera. They saw a dramatic increase, uh, two to threefold increase in cardiac uh, arrest in COVID-19 patients. So the heart is involved. And we're basically now learning that this virus gets into the bloodstream and can directly bind to and be endocytosed by all these other uh, cell types. So from Time Magazine 2004, inflammation, the secret killer, guess what? Inflammation hasn't gone away. It's uh, still attacking us. And this is December 2020. This virus is mutating. You hear about the variants from Brazil, the variants from South Africa, the variants from the United Kingdom. This is the scary one for everyone. These uh, mutations, this is December 2020, the mutations that have been studied from uh, some laboratory studies that have been done just looking at the ability of this particular coronavirus to undergo not only these uh, variants, but also sensitivity to monoclonal antibodies. All right, so you now know the virus, I think, pretty well. You also know it's an endothelial cell disease, which is, uh, in a strange way, warming to my heart because I'm an endothelial cell biologist. But let's talk a little bit about all the different ways of preventing and treating COVID-19, because as we go out there on the streets and talk to people, family members, et cetera, these are the things that come up and they ask questions on, should we wear masks, should we social uh, distance? Anti-masking has been around for a long time. 1918, this is an article on don't wear masks and how government shouldn't control your your rights as a citizen, whether to wear a mask or not. It's clear between 1918 and 2021 that viruses have evolved, but mankind has not evolved. We're still facing this discussion of whether masks work or not. And I will uh, just leave it that the literature that I have read clearly indicates that masking in 1918 and still today is one of the major defenses to block giving the virus as well as uh, receiving uh, the virus. These repurposed uh, natural compounds have really been, I, I think, in, in, in many ways studied by so many different groups, just trying to find something that we can use against the, the different manifestations of this disease. This is one coming from Cyprus and Turkey. It's literally all over the world. People are basically utilizing <laughs> When you don't have ventilators and you don't have oxygen tanks, you're going to find whatever drugs you possibly can to try to use it. So this is a paper that's looking at some natural antiviral compounds, including molecules that block endocytosis. This is one, uh, the monoclonal antibodies certainly block directly the spike proteins, 
But uh, camostat uh, mesylate, that is a, an anti-prostate cancer uh, drug that is being repurposed uh, for this. Chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine has been studied for, you now know, over five years to try to block endocytosis of viruses, remdesivir, just the uh, ability of the uh, polymerases to produce more uh, virus. We're studying everything that we can to try to indirectly uh, block this. Nefamostat is another drug that attacks. It's another uh, cancer drug that attacks that may block this endocytosis. One that just appeared is a patient with multiple sclerosis being treated with uh, natalizumab, is, uh, which is a integrin blocking antibody therapy. It blocks the alpha-4 integrin, which is very common in endothelial cells. In this particular patient, single patient, seem to reduce the uh, degree of the disease in this patient. So we're going to continue to see a lot of these drugs being used. And we have to mention vitamin D. Uh, All of us should uh, get our vitamin D level measured on a regular basis. I'm not a physician, but as a somebody who studied natural uh, chemicals for a while, get your uh, vitamin uh, 25 hydroxyl vitamin D levels above 50 nanograms. uh, And you're probably going to be able to protect yourself through a lot of anti-inflammatory activities. And it has been shown that vitamin D is effective related to the inflammatory response of SARS-CoV-2 in a lot of different areas. I did want to mention a couple of different things. The Corona Project that came out of the University of Pennsylvania, a physician there who had a disease known as Castleman's disease, who began to look at natural compounds. He has started a project in Philadelphia that's called the Penn Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment, uh, which is a pretty remarkable group of people. A lot of medical students at Penn and, and elsewhere are now getting involved with this where they're looking at repurposing drugs to go after the coronavirus. It really has, again, been a dramatic effect of worldwide people looking at alternatives because we just have a very limited repertoire of uh, materials. But COVID-19 vaccine development, lots of vaccines have been developed over the years. The DNA and RNA vaccines had not made it to any current human uh, use until this coronavirus uh, hit. And we go all the way back to some of those DARPA studies and other studies going on that people began the development of all these different types, some of the live attenuated vaccines and inactivated vaccines, the polio-like vaccines and other types of vaccines to go after COVID. But The messenger RNA vaccines won out, as we have seen, and very soon after that, the DNA vaccine. One of the biggest things that changed in mRNA vaccine development was a very simple change that took place around 2011 when the group at Moderna met with a biomaterials expert from MIT, a guy by the name of Bob Langer, and Bob simply told them they needed to encapsulate the mRNA in a lipid, and that would help it get into the cells. That was the voila moment in science that was published in about 2013. And that's what made all the difference in the world to basically 
get this mRNA to be so effective for different types of therapy. So Moderna was developing it for cancers and some other inflammatory responses when the coronavirus hit. So the idea is you inject it into the deltoid muscle. From the muscle, it goes to the lymph node, and that's where all these antibodies are produced. You've got to get it into the deltoid muscle. So this is my shock-giving part of the, the presentation. The president and the Dr. Fauci, they're all getting it correctly. This patient is getting it correctly. This patient is getting the shot incorrectly. You've got to get the injection directly into the deltoid muscle and keep it away from the humerus. All of the students who now go through pharmacy school are given lectures on how to give shots. And this is something that, I don't know exactly, there may be some pharmacists in the audience who can answer that question when they started testing. I remember the first time I went to the pharmacy and to get my flu shot, which I thought was unique. And my, I asked my pharmacist, what class did he take in pharmacy school on how to give shots? And he said, no, I didn't take any class. I was just told to give it and started giving it. You got to learn how to give these shots and the direct way of giving. It's not like giving insulin to the patient. It's got to go into the deltoid muscle. There are incidences of tendinitis and bursitis that are occurring in patients where it's given too low. And if you use the wrong side needle, this is the CDC instructions on how to give a shot. It's miraculous the number of people healthcare providers who have basically volunteered to give the shots, the CDC has basically provided what size needle based upon the weight of the patient, et cetera. And I think for the most part, everybody's being given the shot correctly. Second time I got a vaccine, I got a rookie uh, surgeon who hadn't given a shot in 40 years. And I had to quickly pull up this slide and show them uh, exactly what it was. And he was very thankful to that. It's a uh, it, it's, pretty amazing thing that there are some secondary complications that uh, do take place. And some patients, if it's given uh, subcutaneously, it's not going to be as effective. The anti-vaxxers, can you trust the government? You know, we've, uh, over the years, we've had a lot of different events that have taken place that the general public has questioned whether the government really is on our side and whether scientists really understand what they're doing. When I explain to people the safety of the vaccine, I will bring up some of these different negative things that have happened uh, over the years. Jesse Gelsinger was a, a young man from Tucson, Arizona. I was at the University of Arizona and knew his pediatrician and was involved with gene therapy at the University of Arizona at the time. Jesse went to the University of Pennsylvania. He was the first one to receive gene therapy. He had a ornithine transcarbamylase, so he could not metabolize ammonia correctly. And he was the first one to receive adenovirus-based gene therapy for that. Unfortunately, he died of anaphylaxis three days later. These are the sorts of things that give certain people pause. And we've got to, as scientists, be good shepherds and say, yeah, we understand there have been things that have happened in the past. The Tuskegee experiments, thalidomide approved in Canada and Europe, but it was Dr. Oldham Kelsey from the FDA who basically slammed her fist down and said, no, this should not be approved in the U.S. because she felt the data showed birth defects were taking place with thalidomide. 
Anti-vaccination has been with us since smallpox vaccines were first developed. And then we have some more recent, this is from the 50s, Cutter Laboratories. They basically were distributing out of California a polio vaccine based upon Salk's method. Unfortunately, this particular method of producing it, they were giving live virus to many of these patients and they developed polio. It's things like this and many many other examples that we basically have to understand. This is the best example of how vaccination works. This was a clinic that exposed in an an odd experiment kids to uh, smallpox. This uh, child had received a vaccination. This child had not. The parents decided not to. These parents decided to. And you see the the end results. Vaccines truly uh, do work. And we're using famous people to try to get the word out on uh, vaccines. For the most part, here's Elvis getting his vaccination, obviously not uh, COVID. Prime Minister of India, we have lots of problems in, in India, but these vaccines are safe and effective. I wanted to go through this one real quickly. This is confirmed cases and the density of COVID in different areas of the United States. This is I believe, early mid-summer of 2020. And you see these hot spots that are occurring. If you look at COVID vaccination rates by county, you see the highest hot spots in green. So greater than 30% of the population have received vaccine in these particular areas, less than 10% in these areas. Big hot spots of the virus here, big hot spots of the virus in these green areas and this is where they're getting vaccinated. So what are all these green areas and what does it correlate to? So this is March of 2021. This is the map of American Indian and Alaskan native populations in the United States. Every single initial hotspot of the coronavirus was in these areas. Every single hotspot of vaccination has also occurred in these areas. And the it's the Bureau of Indian Affairs working with local Indian tribes who have basically gotten the word out to get vaccination that it's, I mean, some of these areas, it's approaching 100% of the population has received uh, vaccination. So getting the word out and getting an understanding of the vaccination, the importance that's a, a, a critical story to be told. The Native Americans, both the uh, American Indians and uh, Alaskan uh, Native Americans, uh, there's some lessons to be learned there as far as how to basically maximize vaccination. So FDA approval, just to remind everybody, this all started uh, the FDA getting involved with controlling drugs and food and everything when Upton Sinclair produced his book called The Jungle, which showed how bad the food industry was. There was an outrage. Teddy Roosevelt created the FDA, and the FDA now regulates our products. They have a a component, which is called the emergency use authorization. And I'm often asked by people who are skeptical getting the vaccine that they say it's still experimental. 
And you have to explain, yes, it is experimental in the instance that it has not gone through the complete process of FDA approval and the IND BLA and has gotten the certificate of approval from the FDA. But since there is no other treatment for this life-threatening disease, the FDA has provided emergency use authorization for it. It did have to meet certain criteria for safety and efficacy before the FDA cleared it. And if you asked to see the bottle of of the shot that you got, which I did, one thing that you would see, this is the Moderna emergency use authorization of uh, that material. It's dramatic how quickly this came to market or to uh, clinical use. Typical 12 years to go from discovery of the virus to the process of regulatory review and approval. Overlaid here is six to nine months simultaneously to get this mRNA and now the DNA vaccine approved in patients. I've talked too long. I want to thank collaborator staff, the myriad of medical students, graduate students, undergraduate students have helped, and all my funding agencies that have supported these efforts over the years. That was Dr. Stuart Williams of the Department of Physiology and Biophysics at the University of Louisville. Thanks to him for giving this lecture, and thanks to the Kentucky Academy of Science for letting us broadcast it here. This is Dave Robinson signing off for Bench Talk the Week in Science. Take it easy and see you next week.